everyone, great to see you all. I w we won't go on very long, so, uh, and, and one of the things I like about the Digital University Network events is that they're small, focused, friendly, and a great place to share, if you could call them, half-baked ideas. Um, and we need those forums because sometimes there's a lot of doubt in academia about our ideas, <coughs> sharing them in a friendly way and getting feedback is a great way to develop them. Um, yeah, Stephen Johnson in his book, in his book, uh, where great ideas come from, come from. He 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 says that the coffee house in the age of enlightenment was central to the to the dissemination of ideas because it was a forum where people could freely exchange half baked ideas with writers and people in different disciplines and politicians and activists and writers and poets, and that's how ideas developed. Uh, uh, and 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 now coffee is central to every academic meeting, and and, and so there, there's something in that. And I see this as one of those coffee house type situations. So this is one of those slightly half baked things. So, so I'm just, yeah, it's an idea in progress, and it draws from my well some ideas about information literacy, information management, and digital literacy that I've read, learnt from, and also contributed to in, in different ways. Um, and that is the idea of curation. Um, uh, traditionally, the term curation has been described in relation to the work of museums, museum and library specialists, people who prodigiously select relevant inf materials to develop collections and to develop a new kind of knowledge, uh, a new presentation of knowledge. Um, and people have used this term to describe the cer certain kinds of things that people do online in the sea of information that is available to them. Today, everyday acts of digital curation can look like sharing content online, creating and maintaining a profile on yourself or on a topic on any of the various social media networks, searching on and compiling information, uh, and harnessing pre-existing content, transforming it through the application of criteria, evaluative criteria, uh, 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 that was talked about earlier, and then re redirecting a resultant packet of filtered information to a new audience. And that is something that people do quite regularly online. Um, uh, Ilan Snyder talks about it as a subjective and ideological process. Uh, I've written about it in terms of uh, knowledge production and meaning making, um, in terms of assignment writing. Um, and that links to what we're going to talk about today because you can't really talk about knowledge without talking about ignorance. You can't talk about knowledge production without talking about ignorance fostering or the cultural production of ignorance. We, we, uh, the two go hand in hand and Alison is going to highlight some of that with her uh, uh, discussion, her component to that discussion later. Hopefully there won't be a bump between my <laughs> path on the road and her path. And then, yeah. um, Howard Rheingold wrote in his book NetSmart about crap detection, the skill of actually looking at information, evaluating it, and detecting it's uh, uh, true from false and accurate from inaccurate. Uh, and uh, I've recently written something for the um, <coughs> Encyclopedia of Media Literacy uh, about curation, and I've talked about human and computational forms of curation. Uh, and um, um, uh, 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 the, the role of librarians was talked about by Emma, and, and these are not just like librarians, but teachers. They are traditional stewards in our society. Uh, stewards of information, stewards of, of, of guiding us to, towards a certain way of understanding the world. And the, some of these have been dislodged by new agencies that want to curate information for us. Uh, people don't use librarians in the same way that they used to. 
because there's a new way of getting information. When I was a kid and I wanted to learn about something, I had to do several tasks within the big task of getting that information. I had to get a bus, pay a bus driver, get off at the right bus. This sounds obvious, but it's important. Get off at the right bus stop, pay the right fare, get to the library, talk to the librarian, listen to the librarian, go to the right shelf, get the book, come back and do the reverse. And if I were lucky, I'd get the book that I wanted. So there were tasks nested within the, uh, the task of finding information, like babushka dolls, uh, you opened a task up, there's lots of tasks within that task. Um, uh, there's actually a chapter in my book called Buried in the Matryushkas, which is about the task of finding information or doing literacy in the task within that, and I theorize about that. Well, in the same way, in finding information now, there's a set, different set of tasks and subtasks nested within those tasks. And we're seeing a kind of dislodging or transforming of traditional stewards of our society, teachers, librarians, and even parents. It used to be when you found somebody you wanted to meet and have a relationship with, you'd show them to your parents and then your mum would say, you know, she's dodgy or watch out for her and oh, that's a keeper. Now we have algorithmic scores on who is a match, 70%, 80%, 20%, no, I won't have that. And, and the secrets of these algorithms need to be understood and unpacked, or at least we should acknowledge the other agencies at play in the work of information management, if we are truly honest about theorizing its impact on our lives. My point is that these phenomena that we've talked about are part of broader societal shifts in the new digital sociality, if you want to call it that. Um, and in, a recent, in some recent research by the Museums Association, they talked about the role of museums as becoming more and more popular as guardians of reliable information, due in large part to the mistrust of political institutions, etc. And much of this, I think, is because of museum curators as re, uh, reviving their role as stewards of reliable information and producers of knowledge. Uh, I argue, and I'm sure others will argue, that that this kind of stewardship is just as pressing in, and relevant in online environments uh, due to the abundant amount of information and dodgy stuff that's out there. So, um, when I talk about um, computational uh, curation, what I'm saying there is that... Uh, actually, don't no, yeah, So, when we talk about information, we have to talk also, we have to draw in misinformation. Because some forms of curation lead to bubbles in which the only information one receives is filtered according to a specific set of criteria by algorithms and agencies beyond our control which have learned to do so based on the information that those, those agencies have garnered from us. In short, they have curated a network in which only certain kinds of information will be circulated. If I had 10 pence for every article out there in the last few weeks or months on misinformation, I think I could buy you all a cup of coffee. Well, leading up to this, I used to send Alison every day and I'd, oh, look, there's a new article on this. I told you we need to do something. Oh, look, there's a new article on this. I told you we need to do something. She, how many, how did I send you? You sent me quite a few. Yeah, yeah. So I've collected some of them. in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's late, everyone's talking about it, but no one's really getting at it right. And this is the, this is the forte of literacy, I think, uh, specialists and information people, uh, information theorists. So, so yeah, I mean, my favorite one is this rock star librarians who teach, who choose what your kids read. Um, 
And so, yeah, there's a lot of talk about this, about how do we navigate the sea of information. The important thing is that the resultant echo chamber, as some people call it, of this curated packet, of curated network of, of, of sources of information, will amplify certain narratives while silencing other narratives through the recirculation, circulation, recirculation of partisan information, limiting the opportunity for a in person to encounter, much less to understand and critique conflicting views. Examples include your Facebook friends lists and Twitter feeds in which you all possibly other people purge disagreeable information through unfollow and block options. Uh, similarly, algorithmically determined news feeds decide on the information which is presented to us based on a personal habits, preferences and usages. In both these kinds of cases, filter, filtered bubbles are created and maintained through a set of decisions the difference is what are the mechanisms for that filtering. Um, and so uh, it's precisely here where we think, Alison and I, and I've been thinking about how digital and information literacy theories, theorists and need to acknowledge how harm is done, epistemic harm, which uh, Alison will, will, will talk about in more depth later. Uh, and ignorance is culturally produced. And what is the role of... Uh, uh, of, of the stewards of information in that respect. I mean, there's lots of articles on this, but there's one particular quote by, from the World Economic Forum which said that this is the greatest threat to peace and also our stability. Uh, while the benefits of our hyperconnected communication systems are undisputed, they could potentially enable the viral spread of information that is either intentionally or unintentionally misleading or provocative. Imagine a real-world example of shouting fire in a crowded theatre. In a virtual equivalent, damage can be done by rapid spread of misinformation, even when correct information follows it quickly. And then they ask, are there ways for generators and consumers of social media to develop an ethos of responsibility and healthy scepticism? Emma talked about criticality. Charles uh, uh, used the uh, uh, Scannell framework, one pillar of which was evaluating, evaluating information to mitigate the risk of digital wildfires. Now, algorithms are extremely powerful, and we have delegated much of our work of managing information to them. There is simply too much information out there for us to deal with. We have to do it. We have to delegate part of our, the job of managing information to the machines. But search and uh, uh, the the the, the self-regulatory management raises in, of algorithms raises important questions. Um, the sanitized mathematical objectivity alleged of algorithms has to be unpacked, understood, initially acknowledged, first of all. And uh, more importantly, uh, uh, the, the social media executives hold the secrets to their algorithms close to their, very tightly, because of commercial reasons. So, I mean, these are all factors that, 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 that necessitate our critiquing these, these particular agencies uh, and it's a challenge, and I don't have an answer, but at least I can start a conversation. Um, yes, yeah, so, so I mentioned that earlier about uh, computational curators and the, the, this logic of traditional stewardship. Um, Cathy O'Neill has a great book called uh, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh, it's a great book. I mean, she quotes some seriously interesting examples, frightening examples of how... Uh, Algorithms are increasingly powerful in decision-making for individuals, employers, and governments. 
One of the examples she talks about is a school system in the US that applied an algorithmic teacher assessment tool which measured students' progress and calculated the extent to which the students' educational progress or decline was attributable to individual teachers. The lowest calculated scores were, were fired each year regardless of any positive evaluations that they may have received from testimonials and other such uh, forms of evaluation elsewhere. And, uh, she, yeah, and her book is full of these kinds of examples. Another one is um, uh, predictive policing. That's reminds me of reminiscent of the uh, Tom Cruise film, but but which actually they are piloting in certain parts of the U.S. Um, the, the the there is a tendency to delegate agency to machines and then assume that it's pure and sanitized and objective, because of its uh, seemingly mathematically clear or not clear but but you know uh, 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 um, formulation. I was, as we were in the airport early, just before we went through the scans, uh, yeah, I, I, I really picked my moments. I said to Alison, do you know, you know those machines, they strip you. She said, what? I said, they strip you. Uh, uh, I said, never in the history of humanity have people been stripped naked and going from one place to the next. Because it's a machine doing it. We think it's okay. It's acceptable and it's a machine. It's for security. And so, it, you know, and, and there's a way we think about non-human agency, which I think we might need to uh, think about again. And people like uh, Lucy Suchman have written about drones and, and, and that kind of thing and how we detach emotional emotions from things that happen that machines do that we ultimately program, or humans program, uh, that, uh, that apply to the way we handle and manage and seek out and value information as well. So, uh, and there's a couple... Lucy Suchman. Uh, she's written about um, she's at Lancaster. She's written about um, um, drones and, and that sort of thing and, and machine agency and yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of things that comes to mind, including uh, uh, some Stanford research that I read recently, uh, which which found that most students in their in their educational uh, uh, department couldn't tell the difference between um, sponsored Google search results and non-sponsored Google search results and <coughs> other such uh, differentiations that, that, that were lost on a lot of students and so there's a lot of stuff out there you can find out when I give you, a, give you all that it's easy to, to find online my, my point is to talk about the issue so the issues are the educational issue of nurturing discernment as a critical skill the issue is is understanding another issue would be understanding epistemic harm which Alison will go into in more detail but the self-regulatory nature of these machine agencies as well. That's uh, you. Yeah, I'm doing it really quickly. Uh, I won't. I won't take long either. <laughs> uh, and this, this, as uh, Ibrar has said, may be a bit of a jump. My background is philosophy of education, uh, particularly. I'm particularly interested in questions of social justice. Uh, with respect to special needs, however one constructs the notion of special need, and, and feminism. And in actual fact, my interest in epistemic injustice arose out of my interest in feminism. And feminists have done a great deal to revive an interest in epistemology uh, and to look at the harms that are caused by ways of knowing, so-called, but also ways of not knowing and 
the active forms of ignorance. Because I think that most people, when they think about ignorance, they think that this is quite passive. You simply don't know something. And I think that what feminists in particular have uncovered is that in actual fact, ignorance is actually a very active thing. And so I, I won't go into the details of the logarithms because my, my specialism is not digital literacy and I don't really know how logarithms on the internet work. So <laughs> I will leave that to you, Brad, and maybe he can stitch it together later on. But I mean, if we think about, I mean, epistemology, of course, is how we know what we know. And it's about the science of knowledge. And interest in knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge, at least in the Western tradition, has, uh, is a question that has been asked and an answer to which has been sought since at least Plato, and no doubt earlier than him. And, you know, we know a great deal, or at least we think that we know a great deal, and many of us are concerned to know a great deal more, probably because of the kinds of institutions that we're working in, the kinds of pressures that academics are under in order to know and to keep on knowing new things in order to find the next new idea that is going to make our names, pull in the money, and so on and so forth. But in actual fact, certain forms of knowledge are privileged. And we deprivilege other forms of knowledge as well. And I, one of the ways in, we, in ways in which we do that is through what we would call Miranda Fricker. I don't know if anybody's come across Miranda Fricker's work. She's really interesting. And she's, she, more than anybody else in the field of feminist epistemology, has revived interest in this. But she talks about the way in which we grant either credibility excess to certain speakers and deficit uh, to other kinds of speaker based on our stereotypical, often prejudicial assumptions on their capacities as knowers. Um, now, and the way in which we do that so for, is, for example, certain professions have a great deal of credibility, doctors, professors, and so on and so forth, whereas other kinds of knowers, say your plumber or whatever have you, we may grant less credibility to them unless we ask them about plumbing. Um, women. I was talking to my colleague there earlier on about the importance of student evaluations at the moment. And I don't think that what the universities have given much credence to is that women as a whole get far fewer positive evaluations than do men. And part of the reason for that is, is <laughs> the old-fashioned deep misogynistic assumptions about what a woman is and about a woman's cognitive authority. And because of the prejudicial assumption is that women are far more less rational than men, because we are much more emotional, and to have an emotion is to be irrational, that their capacity for knowing and their capacity for developing skills is assumed to be much less than that of a man. And there's been quite a bit of research done to show that if you... I think it was the LEC who reported on this that if, uh, if a man called Tim does the teaching in semester one, he will get a certain amount of evaluations. It'll be the same person teaching in semester two, it's just that Tim will become Tina, and the evaluations go down. So, 
also based on uh, the extent to which we grant credibility to somebody in their capacity as a knower of their own lived experience, um, we thereby allow certain forms of knowledge to be lost. Now, this might seem uh, pretty explicit, but a great a person who has done a lot to discuss the taxonomy of ignorance is a woman called Nancy Tuna, or Tuana. And she looked at, um, she did, produced a very interesting paper in 2006 in Hypa Hypatia called The Speculum of Ignorance. And the, it was about the feminist movement in the United States and the feminist health movement and the way that women's bodies in medical science, and particularly in reproductive medical science, was ignored. And that knowledge about the clitoris, for example, was simply, was practically absent. Prior to the 19th century, going into the 20th century, it was thought that the clitoris had a great deal to do with your capacity to have a baby. So there was an interest in knowing the structure of the vagina and the clitoris. But as soon as it became understood that an orgasm has got nothing to do whether you have a baby or not, interest in that part of a woman's anatomy was lost, well it was ignored and then it was lost. And what arose instead were misconceptions, myths and beliefs about a woman's sexuality. Now these may have always exi have, have existed, but that particular kind of knowledge began to be lost. And the other forms of ignorance that arise as well, when you begin to discredit people in their capacities as knowers, is that you know nothing about their lived experience. Especially when you, become, you, you come to rely on stereotypes, beliefs about what it is you think certain classes of people actually do. So I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues who's from the School of Midwifery and Nursing, who's very interested in health and what he was saying is that a great number of people in prison, men, have actually got brain damage. But it's very under-researched. Nobody wants to do the research because nobody's particularly interested in male prisoners with cognitive defects. So what these kind of prisoners could tell us about both their lived experiences within prison and their lived experiences outside of prison and the conditions which brought them into prison in the first place, so funders are not interested in knowing. So forms of ignorance are actively cultivated. And what Nancy Tuna does is there's this configuration, this, this taxonomy of ignorance. So she says that, for example, that ignorance results from a configuration of interest. So if there's a great deal of interest in how you measure well-being, for example, you're going to get a hell of a lot of research that's going to be invested in those forms of research. And we come from a school of education in which random control trials uh, are particularly popular and my colleagues who are involved in random control trials, this is where you can actually clinically measure whether certain types of reading habits will have a measurable effect on a child's literacy and interest and motivation to read and they attract a huge amount of funding. But if the interest is not in how the poor 
end up in prison or why it is we know nothing about brain damaged individuals in prison, then what we have here is a configuration of interest that is blocking sources of knowledge. And then the next taxonomy is knowing that we do not know and not caring to know. And that is because it's not in our interest to know. It doesn't serve me in some capacity. The other kind of uh, ignorance is that we do not know that we do. We do not know that we do not know. And current interests and knowledge block such interests. And then we have what's called willed, willed or willful ignorance. They do not know and don't want to know. And I think potentially they're all epistemically harmful because they lead to a lack of epistemic non-virtue. I mean, I recently wrote a paper on the sexual exploitation of girls in England, for example. And I remember when the case first broke, which was in 2012, and I was listening to Radio 4, Women's Hour, going from Edinburgh to Glasgow, and about the young girl who tried first to tell her teachers what was going on. She then went to social work and then eventually went to the police, none of whom wanted to know. What they said about her instead was that she had brought it on herself. So the systematic, weekly, daily abuse of that girl's body and mind had nothing to do with structures or the willful ignorance of social workers, the police and teachers, but everything to do with her. She was chaotic. She was willful. And these were the words that were used in the report. She was willful in her misbehavior. And therefore, what had happened to her was her own fault. Now, of course, women who have ever been sexually harassed <laughs> or raped will be very familiar with this kind of blame ethic. Um, and as more and more girls came forward in the Oxford case, for example, Rotherham was the paradigmatic case, um, eventually, because, simply because of the numbers of girls that were coming forward and reporting the same kinds of abuse, eventually teachers, the social workers and the police began to take interest. But what seemed quite apparent from the beginning was is that the police did have an idea of what was going on. But because of the perpetrators, which in this particular case was Asian men, they didn't want to get involved because they feared charges of racism. So what they did was, to an extent, they cultivated forms of willful ignorance with severe epistemic harm. One, the girls' accounts, their testimonies of what was happening to them was, first of all, completely discredited discounted and in many cases completely denigrated and the girls testimonies could only be granted credibility once more girls came forward and the numbers i mean the j report of 2013 estimated that something like 1500 girls in that year in that area had been systematically abused and there there, you know, we all make cognitive investments in, in our beliefs and in our value systems. And very often we're not even aware of our own ignorances, our own prejudices, and the way the stereotypes operate to make prejudgments about the kinds of people that we come into contact with. We're not even aware that we're making stereotypical uh, assumptions about certain classes of people. 
And neither sometimes are we aware, therefore, of the kind of epist epistemic harms that we cause. I used to be a secondary school teacher, and I know very well <laughs> the ways in which teachers, for example, give credibility to certain kinds of pupils and great deal of discredibility to other kinds of pupils. So you'd re scamp, you know, your naughty Johnny in the back of the class there. If he actually came and reported something to some teachers of some harm that had been done to him, the standard response was, well, what did you do to bring that about? And if it was somebody like a middle class boy or girl, for example, or generally somebody that was viewed to be, oh, that's a good wee child, their credibility, their testimony was always granted a certain amount of truth much more readily than the testimony that came from the marginalised and popular unappealing child. I've seen so, so many instances of it. And, um, and part of the problem with this, of course, is, is that, the, you know, ignorance is a, is, is a substantive epistemic practice. It isn't passive. It is something that is cultivated, something that is nourished. Uh, you know, certainly when we're talking about willed and willful ignorances, for example, and also when we don't care to know. Because to know something, particularly when, when we know that there's a kind of harm being created by this, should call upon us to act in some way, to make some kind of ethical response to the knowledge that we gain from hearing about the harms that have been caused to particular groups of people. But many of us are, you know, we suffer from inertia. We can't be bothered, can't be arsed. There's no, or we're overwhelmed and don't know what to do. But I think the, one of the big problems, as I see it, is that one of the reasons that people don't want to know is because it demands too much of them ethically. And it means that they have to divest themselves, actively divest themselves off the kinds of belief systems that they may have taken years to construct. And again, speaking as a teacher, as I was for many years, many, many of my colleagues are not at all willing to divest themselves of their particular beliefs about what it means to teach certain classes of people, whether that's the disabled, whether that's a child with ADHD, or a child with so-called social-emotional behavioural difficulties and, and so on. And so, <laughs> what has this got to do with digital literacies? Well, I think that we can see the same kinds of the same kinds of taxonomies of ignorance being coming into play. There are some things we just don't want to know. We don't want to be challenged. You know, we don't want to be cognitively undermined. So we tend to go to those sources that will reinforce and give us comfort that what we know and what we believe is okay to know and to believe. And we're all guilty of that. I am as well. I mean, I can't bear to go to the right wing press, for example. I just simply cannot. And, you know, reading anything that Trump... I can't even stand listening to the man's voice. And, and I genuinely mean that. I mean, he's the epitome of... I don't know what. He's just the epitome of badness. So... <laughs> so I, but I think, however, there is potential to explore the kind of thing that interested Brar from this perspective because I don't think it's been done, at least not in this way. And, I th and although I think it might be challenging to knit together 
the, the world that you operate in with these kinds of conceptual arguments, epistemological arguments, it would be quite a nice challenge to, to try and do so and maybe understand what's happening online in a different way. Yeah, uh, actually, let's just go to the final points, then we'll go to the discussion. Yeah, so, thank you, Alison. You see, it's <coughs> great having friends who are philosophers, isn't it? Um, um, so when it comes to... Philosophy's not valued, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to granting credibility and understanding the capacity, or getting people to understand the capacity of people as knowers on their own personal terms, nurturing discernment and crap detection, but at a deeper level to the, to the way that Howard Rheingold talks about it, we think that this has to be a, an essential part of uh, theories, frameworks and research agendas surrounding digital information literacy. They have to take into account the potential for epistemic harm in their work. Uh, the study of digital information literacy is intrinsically connected to the study of knowledge production, we've talked about that, therefore also to the production and sustenance of ignorance. That is the other side of, of epistemology, is the nurturing of ignorance. And uh, this is the link we're trying to make, and, and we want to sort of throw that out and perhaps develop further ideas around that. Um, there was one activity we thought we'd do, but I don't know, I guess it's just... Uh, yeah. Yeah? So looking at the platforms and tools which you use and your online habits, reflect with the person next to you on the extent <laughs> to which you are reliant on algorithms in your life, and reflect on how your access to forms of knowledge are possibly obstructed or constructed through these algorithms. Is that yeah, is that okay? Yeah, if you want to do that as a as a as a connect on to this, I think that would be a nice way to sort of uh, uh, try try to apply. Okay, everyone. Just very quick uh, key points. Anything notable that you that you heard in that? Very quick. <laughs>